From the upcoming film, True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. Nailed it. He laughs and makes fun of what is everybody in that room's secret struggle. They all want to be X number of wins of Golden Globes. They're all operating on the premise that I want to be enough and more will get me there. That's it. I have a need. I have a lack. If I just had this, all will be well. And that's the struggle of everybody in that room. And before we start to look down our noses at all those celebrities, it's the struggle of everybody in this room. Different platform, different ways of seeking that. But we all think that if we just had this or that, then I would be enough. Now, there's a biblical word for that, and you've already heard it mentioned in Romans chapter 7. It's not a word that we use very often. It's the word covet. Now, at its very basic root, it just means desire. In Genesis chapter 2, when God has finished making everything in the garden, the word there for covet is actually the word for desire, and it's, it's translated as that which was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Everything that he provided was pleasant to the sight. That's Genesis chapter 2. Not a chapter later, but in Genesis chapter 3, that word for desire has changed into something more. Such that you read, it was a delight to the eyes of Adam and Eve that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And in that sense, the desire is greater than its true worth. Their desire could properly be translated as covet, because to covet 
is to want something in such a way that it overrides every other thing you've heard or might consider. And what have they already heard? Hey, you people, you cats, you can eat everything, just not this one. Everything. They heard it, they got it, they followed it, and then, well, that one's not bad. And they listen to the whisper. And so do I. And so do you. That idea of desiring something so much that everything else begins to pale in comparison, that shows itself up through the entirety of Scripture. What does Cain covet? Cain covets the acceptance that Abel received from his sacrifice, and he covets it so much that it ends up leading him to kill his brother. David sees a woman bathing on the roof, and he covets that wife, Bathsheba of Uriah, and it leads him to commit a litany of sins against her, against him, against the Lord, because he coveted what was not his. Several weeks ago before our commandment series, you heard Andrew preach on 1 Kings 21 about King Ahab coveting what? Naboth's vineyard. He liked the land. He dug it. He wanted to build it up. He was a developer. I want it. You can't have it. What does it lead him to do? To conspire to the stoning of Naboth. He covets that which is another's. It shows itself up through the entirety of Scripture. And that, that, there it is writ large. But friends, it's written your story too. Kids, how shall I put this? When you were itty-bitty and you didn't get what you want, you did all sorts of things to let us know. <laughs> and we would look at you and we'd go, oh, look at that, it's a tantrum, right? And the problem is, maybe we don't stomp our feet anymore and maybe we don't weep crocodile tears, but that tantrum still lives within when we don't get what we want. And it leads us to do all sorts of things that maybe are just more subtle, it's the same thing. We are finishing our series on the Ten Commandments at a place that I think is very helpful to us because what it will tell us is that your only hope of ever fulfilling this is to throw yourself upon the grace of God. There's a little line in Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning book, Gilead, I've quoted it to you many times before, and it's one of the minister's names, Reverend Ames, who who speaks of the word covetousness in an old way, uses the word covetous. And he speaks of himself and of all people when he puts it this way. I believe the sin of covetous is the pang of resentment you may feel when even the people you love best have what you want and don't have. When the beauty of other lives is a misery and an offense. There's nothing that makes a person's fallenness more undeniable than covetous. You feel it right in your heart, in your bones. And he goes so far as to say this. The 10th commandment is unenforceable. Even by oneself, even with the best will in the world, and it is violated constantly. That's just a long way of saying this. When the commandment says, you shall not covet, the first thought you should have is, there's no way. All the other stuff, don't kill, all right, I'll put the gun down. Uh, don't commit adultery, I'm going to stay over here. Uh, all those other things, the behaviors that you can sort of make choices, behavioral choices that you can't do. But for me to tell you 
I don't want you to want what somebody else has. There is no switch. And that's why it's wonderful, if unbearable, that the Ten Commandments ends on a commandment in which you and I look at the Lord and say, how? And the Lord says, precisely. The sum of life is that you have to throw yourself upon grace. And the antithesis, the alternative for covetous, for covetousness, is something that Paul's going to refer to and that we're going to focus on today. It's this idea of being content. That elusive thing called contentment. We are going to consider contentment under three, I hope, simple heads. One, what is it? Two, where does it come from? And three, how do you learn it? What is it? Where does it come from? How do you learn it? Who's in? We're in Deuteronomy 5. We'll conclude with Philippians 4. I wonder if you might stand and we'll, uh, we'll give this one a go. Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. You had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we go. You may have a seat. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. This is not some seminary professor sitting in his study in the quiet of academic world writing a treatise on contentment. This is a dude sitting in jail. And that's Paul, and that's Rembrandt's version of it. And you know anything, if you know anything about Paul's story, right? He's, he is converted to Jesus. He's the, the least likely guy you'd imagine ever being a, a vocal a voice for Christ. And he has every reason to hit the ground running and to do all that. And where, we, where does he end up? He ends up in prison. Essentially, from one point of view, immobilized. He can do nothing. He's been targeted. He has been harassed. 
He has been whipped. He has been beaten. He has been hunted. He's been hated. And he's planted communities after a number of missionary journeys, and now he can't do anything for them except write them letters. And so this guy is familiar with being deprived, of being taken off his mark, of not having a chance to do what he thought he would be spending the rest of his days doing. And yet, what you hear from him, even in these words and other places in the letters that he's written, you hear a man at rest. You hear a person seeking to have his needs met. That, that doesn't change. But you do not find him consumed by that. You do not find him resentful at what is not true about what he does not have that others have. He's not bitter. That's contentment. And that is because one side of contentment, and there are two, one side of contentment is a rest and a gratitude amid lack, amid want amid being in a middle of the story that you would never have written for yourself. That's one part of contentment, and we all understand that part also. But there's another side of contentment too. And he makes it clear. There is contentment about not having what you would like and could genuinely use, but there's also the expression of contentment in time of plenty. He knows how to abound, he says there in verse 12. And so contentment is in play not only when there are needs in play, it is also in play when you have everything that you need. Not only when you are impoverished, but also when you are supplied. Contentment is necessary. And there is a voice that echoes that, that really spoke to it, Back in the 17th century, his name is Jeremiah Burroughs. Not when Charles III was in power, not even when Charles II was in power, but when Charles I was in power, right before he was taken out of power and beheaded. Jeremiah Burroughs is a preacher. He's a preacher in London. He's a contributor to the theological document that kind of forms the constitution of this church's denomination called the Westminster Confession. He contributes to that document. He writes a bunch of sermons in a book called The, the, the Great Jewel of Contentment. And then in 1646, he gets on his horse to go back from having contributed to the Westminster Confession. He falls off that horse and dies two weeks later. And within 10 years, all of the work of the Westminster Confession is essentially shelved because the monarchy is renewed and the parliament is dissolved under Charles II. Which just goes to show you that whatever he had to say to us about the nature of contentment is necessary because of all of the hopes and dreams that those who composed the Westminster Confession had about it being the very bulwark to hold against against heresy, even that changes in a heartbeat. Burroughs speaks of contentment in this way when he says, the most contented with any low condition that he has in the world, and yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. Though his heart is so enlarged that the enjoyment of all the world in 10,000 worlds cannot satisfy him for his portion, yet he has a heart quieted under God's disposal. That's, yeah, that's old language. It's a run in a sentence. The Puritans love to do that. Here's his point. 
contentment is such that you may delight in many things, but you are not taken in by it that you think, finally I've found the sweet spot. He may enjoy any number of things, and they are rightly to be enjoyed, wholesome and gifts from God, no less. But they are not his everything. He is not taken in. And what Jeremiah Burroughs and the Apostle Paul were trying to tell us is that contentment is necessary at all times in every circumstance you find yourself in. Why? Because one, they know the human heart. They know that unless there is something that is rooted more deeply in your heart than anything else in your circumstances, it's not enough. You will always have an appetite for more. Nothing will satisfy you. And, and it's, it's the unfortunate circumstance that your heart and our culture <laughs> are a match made in hell. Because everything you want is offered and promised by everything our culture wants to provide you. In fact, the very culture depends on that kind of wants that you start to think of as needs. which means that you're never content. They know the human heart and why contentment is needed in both kinds of circumstances, but they also know Israel's history. They know what happens when Israel got what it wanted, what it was promised, such that you read a warning in Deuteronomy 8 when it goes like this. Take care. Lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Sounds like a great deal, right? Then your heart is lifted up and then you forget the Lord. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. It's straight out of Bart Simpson around the table. Dear God, we bought this food for ourselves. Thanks for nothing. Good, yeah. The nature of our heart, the nature of Israel's history is there to say to us this. Look, God can birth, he can bless a nation, he can put them in the place that he said that they would, and then what happens? They're like kids that get a little bit too confident about the freedom that they have, and they begin to wander off until they put themselves in danger. And when you let contentment drift in such a way, not only when you are in lack, but also when you are in plenty, you have set yourself up for something. Contentment is more than just muddling through until it gets better. It is needed even when things are better. Now, if I can clarify what we mean by contentment by way of a contrast, let me... Uh, let me put two very unlikely folks up for you that offer very different visions of what it means to be content. The first one is uh, Jedi Master Yoda. And the other one is the guy that was on his rest of development named Tony Hale. Now, I won't show you a clip from Yoda. You've seen enough of Yoda. Um, but Yoda sits down with Anakin when Anakin is right on the verge of wondering if he's going to go for the light side or the dark side. And he's worried about losing his wife. And what is Yoda's instruction to Anakin in that moment? He says, this is what you do. Let go of everything you're afraid to lose. Which is a very Buddhist sentiment. 
And that's not to discredit or disparage our Buddhist friends. But it is the notion that the, the sooner that you and I detach ourselves from anything really strong with that which we might love and which we might be afraid to lose, the sooner that we can find peace. That's one vision. That's one version of how to live. Just don't love anything really strongly and then you don't have to worry about the disappointment or the devastation that you will feel when you lose it. That's one vision. I want to let you listen to Tony Hale, and we've heard it before. In fact, the last time we heard it, we were sitting out in that parking lot. So it's been a while. But here's a brief excerpt from an interview that Mark Marin did with him a few years ago, where Tony Hale, who is a believer, is talking about his own desire to find a good job, a good career, a good role. And, and here he's very frank about his own struggle and what underpins the struggle. I, I got my dream on Arrested Development, and it didn't satisfy me the way I thought it was going to satisfy me. And Does it, anything? Um, if I think if I – but here's the thing. Anything doesn't if your expectations are unrealistic. And my I think I came into Arrested Development because all the times in New York I was like, yeah. all I wanted was a sitcom. I just wanted a sitcom. And I was there seven years, and I was like, that's coming, that's coming. And I gave it too much weight. Uh. And then I got there, and I was like, oh – the reality, I, uh, just the reality of like, I gave it too much uh, power. Yeah. And so I think because of that, I woke up to the fact of like, I had been just not been very present. Oh, you know? I might see. I think that when I really look at things, my expectations are really, really, for the most part, just to feel better. Yeah. Like, like well, yeah, I, I, think, I don't think it's going to solve any big problems or that I'm going to launch into some part of some other level yeah. of fame. But like, I'd like to get through something, and after I'm through it, not go like, God, I don't, I could have done but better. Don't, <laughs> but don't you, don't you? I don't know if you do this. I, I think my time in New York, and I still do this to an extent. Whatever I was going through, whether it was you know the struggle or life or something, yeah. there was always this fantasy and narrative in my head of like, oh, once that sitcom happens, once this perfect job happens, and for me, it was the job someone else it could be. Once I get married, once I have a baby, right, whatever yeah, sure, it is, sure. then something's going to click in. And right, right, you, right. I gave that thing too much power. And it's just, oh, yeah. you know, and then I, then I was there and I was like, and I've said this a lot, but it's that thing of if you're not practicing contentment where you uh, are, you're not yeah. going to be content when you get what you want. I, I could have paid just the last three seconds. That was it. If you're not practicing contentment where you are, you're not going to be content when you get what you want. Jeremiah Burroughs put that in different language. Contentment is simply evenness and proportion between our hearts and our circumstances. They match. They are not too despondent at what might befall me, though something has befallen me that hurts and is painful and doesn't seem to be ending soon, or it is not too elated by what I have found. In other words, it has found a way of being that is in some sense untethered by circumstances as much as they affect us. Neither Jeremiah Burroughs, nor Tony Hale, nor the Apostle Paul is arguing for kind of a stoic thing where I feel nothing, I am attached to nothing, I believe everything is passing and so I will love nothing. That's, that's not Christian, that's stoic. And it's also... Contentment is also not a life in which you don't aspire to anything, in which you have no desires, or you don't strive for anything. It's just a different quality of the striving. 
Can you see how critical it is, how crucial it might be to find this thing called contentment, as elusive as it might be? Because if you don't have it, you have set yourself up for disillusionment. You are living a life that does not fit reality. That's what it is. Okay, wow, great, but like, where does it come from? I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about that. There is no building you have ever been in or that have ever should have been in that didn't have a foundation. There is always something that a building that is worth your time in it has to rest upon that holds it in place, that keeps it up. That's what we call the foundation. That's my way of saying, what is the foundation of contentment? You don't have to go far, and Paul rattles it off in one verse. He says it two times. Chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Oh, easy. Rejoice? What, what? Let's be clear what joy is, in case we have forgotten. It's not to be confused with this general sorts of mirth and upwelling of goodness and uh, sort of a generic kind of happiness or, or pleasantness or things like that. Joy can be experienced in your tears. Joy can be experienced in the middle of sorrow. Joy is simply what keeps your sorrow, your disappointment, your tragedies from embittering you or consuming you or possessing you. And therefore, when Paul says rejoice, he is not saying don't ever weep. Don't ever be sorrowful. You follow Paul's life. He knows how to weep. He does weep. He tells us, weep with those who weep. So this is not an implicit call to just sort of suck it up. But it is a call to take heart. Now, uh, this might be a silly illustration. I may have told you about this before. You know, 1986, uh, Challenger accident. Um, it's in late January, and all the families and the president go to Houston. And Peter Jennings who's a commentator for ABC, uh, he's there to cover the funeral. And, you know, if you know anything about Peter Jennings, I miss Peter Jennings. Um, this, man. This. He, just, he did the straight news. Love that. But as they cut to commercial, and he sees the families walking in, and they're about to come back on, he's about to lose it. And his producer comes up to him and sees that Peter Jennings is about to lose it when everybody's about to see him I try to explain it, and he just walks up here, Jenny, and he goes, steady. Steady. And it's not about his joy, but it is in some ways an element of what it means for Paul to say to you, rejoice. But not in a sort of a generic optimism. He says rejoice, which is not to be confused with Bobby McFerrin saying, don't worry, be happy. This is rejoicing in the Lord. It is somehow finding, seeking your joy in the Lord. That's not optimism. It's tethered. It's tethered to two ideas. One, of what God has already done for you. That Jesus Christ has come for you and is present to you 
and is powerful for you like no one else has or will or can be. And he has been like a commando team that has dropped into enemy territory to rescue you from any number of things. He is like a doctor who is not content with simply calling you on the phone, but drops everything and comes to your house and sits at your bedside and looks you in the eye and tells you the truth and tries to be of help to you. He is like anybody in law enforcement who is out to protect you and will take a bullet for you if you get into harm's way. That's what he has done. And by living and dying, he has come to pardon you. He has come to rescue from the wiles, the schemes, and the deceits of the devil, the father of lies. And somehow, when you rejoice in that, something changes in the way you think about your contentment or your circumstances. What he has done already But Paul is not simply content to tell you, isn't it great how our status has changed as a consequence of what Jesus has done? He's not only looking to what Jesus has done for us in the past, he also looks at us at what Jesus will do for us in the future. And that's why if you back up three chapters in Philippians, he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But as we heard from Andrew and others yesterday on the men's retreat, and as you hopefully hear from us on a number of occasions, the Lord still has work to do in us to renew, to stabilize, to mature, to bless, to find life. Friends, this is the gospel. What he has done for you already and what he still promises to you for you in the present. That is supposed to be the basis for our joy. There is pardon, there is reconciliation, there is adoption. All of these things that we're going to be talking about over the next several months as we look and listen to the book of Ephesians. That's where the joy is to be found. And do you know what it looks like then to have that kind of joy? Joy that may not be smiling, but joy that is hopeful. That joy is at work when everything falls apart. One of Jeremiah Burroughs' concerns for those that he was preaching to in the 17th century was that so many people's discontent was a function of them believing that bad stuff would never happen to them. And he was there to gently say, no, that's actually normal. And our problem is that we just don't think it should ever happen or will ever happen. But it does. When it comes to knowing this contentment in real time in the midst of our tragedies, it's, it's not to pretend that they don't hurt. It's not to sort of take a stiff upper lip. But it is to believe that this is not the only thing that is true for you in that moment. As true and as pervasive and as problematic as it is. What does contentment look like though when you're the victim of an injustice? And many are. Uh, Is this telling you to just sort of, you know, shut up, Uh, get over it? No. There are some injustices for which there is no remedy in this life. And many of you know it. Feeling it. Bring it with you today. And then there are some injustices that it would be good if they would be overturned. They're like flowers on 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 a hill of dirt. They They keep the area from eroding further. 
for justice to see the light of day is to prevent the further erosion of a people, of a, of a, of a commonwealth, of a society. And therefore, it's a good thing, a good thing that's worthy to be pursued insofar as you're able. But the way contentment looks in the pursuit of that justice is that you're not becoming that which you despise. That there is a place for restraint. That there is a place for hope and persistence in it. And I think contentment also shows up in the midst of frustration. When you've done everything right and expected something in return and nothing came of it, in which case you might be tempted to believe this was a waste. Contentment looks like this. It means that your love is not in vain, even when it is unrequited. That's what contentment looks like. What's one other place that contentment looks like? I, I want to show it to you. I don't want to capitalize again on another person's misfortune, but, and we've talked about Tim Keller a lot, but what about it? What happens when your health and your foreseeable future is something that other people have and you don't have anymore? Well, here's a really candid comment from him about him and his wife as they struggle through what it means to face affliction. Well, okay, let me just say something that Kathy and I have talked to each other about in the last year. If Jesus Christ was actually raised from the dead, if he really got up, walked out, was seen by hundreds of people, talked to them, if he was raised from the dead, then you know what? Everything's going to be all right. Mm. Whatever you're worried about right now, whatever you're afraid of, everything is actually going to be okay. Mm. Uh, because because you got to remember, we're not just talking about resurrected people. Jesus Christ is, and this is where Christianity is unique, we're talking about a resurrected world, meaning other, uh, there's plenty of other religions that talk about a future afterlife, which is a non-material world. In other words, you get a consolation for the world we've lost. Mm. Christianity says it's not just your bodies are being resurrected, but the, the world is actually going to be a material world that's cleansed from all evil and suffering and, uh, and sin. And if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then the whole world is going to be, in a sense, resurrected. Mm. And everything is going to be okay. Mm. Everything. You don't, even, you don't know how? I don't know how, but it will be. So, uh, and you know what? Actually, it would, right now, I couldn't possibly be convinced that Jesus was not raised from the mm. dead, either intellectually or existentially. So whenever I'm, and by the way, but Kathy and I, listen, we cry, we, had, we, we cried a lot last mm. night. Sometimes the reality of the shortness of what we have left here just overwhelms us, and we were just weeping together and, and crying. And then you say, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it is gonna be okay. And then you can wipe your tears, but you don't stop mm. crying. Uh, it's like salt in the wound that keeps the wound from going bad. Mm. Hmm. Uh, that keeps them from getting infected, but it doesn't mean that until the end of you know until we actually meet Jesus Christ, we we still have our wounds, so they aren't going to be hmm. healed, but they'll be healed by His. So I think I still could, yeah, I would still go back to if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and He was, you're going to be okay. Contentment is the evenness and proportion between our heart and our circumstances. 
and it rests on a foundation of joy in what God has done and what God will already do. And that's all wonderful, but how do we learn it? I just tried to show you somebody in real time, in real life, demonstrating to us what it means to learn it. Um, it's not just true of pastors, it's true of everybody. Not only do we teach each other how to live a good life, we also teach each other how to have a good death, insofar as we are able. And part of learning how to have a good death is learning how to be content as we near it. So how do you learn it? Because Paul, look, he said, I know the secret of facing plenty, I know the secret of facing abound, but I've learned it. He didn't just sort of, you know, I, I learned it like my multiplication tables and then it's just there. Learning it is something that you learn repeatedly. It's like a, you know, you gotta, it, it starts to drift, you got to dr- pull it back in. So what's the plan? What's the way we learn it? There's three things that sort of show up as a constellation in the last part of chapter four. You, you look at stars and you go, what? oh, okay. And then you pull out your app and you go, oh, there's the bear, right? I see it. I see the stars now. I see the bear. You look at these three things in Paul's writings and you look at that and there goes, oh, that's how you learn contentment. Not to oversimplify, but there's three things. One, you think. You, you think, like Paul says in chapter 4. He says, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. And you, you say to yourself, I can't think about those things. I can't think right now. Wrong. You are thinking if you're discontented. You're just thinking about the things that you wish were different. That's thinking. Paul was saying you have to displace those thoughts and think about other things. Not because you're pretending that they don't hurt or that they're going like to just sort of magically evaporate. But you do think about those things. You think about the gospel. And even in those thoughts, which is, again, it's, it's, it's trying to use our reason to, to fight this battle, to learn contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs is honest enough to say, you may reach the end of your rope in which reasons just aren't having the effect you would hope. What do you do then? You pray. You ask for faith you do not have. You ask, literally, I'm quoting Jeremiah Burroughs, ask for the grace of faith. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. To ask him to help you consider the mercies you've already received, the mercies that are true even in the midst of the malaise or the mistreatment or the tragedy that you're in the place of, and of the mercy still to come. You pray. And then last of all, You do what he's told you. You confess your sins. You forgive, love one another. You, you weep with those who weep. You, you try to outdo one another in love. There's never a bad opportunity to practice obedience. Never miss it. Are those things a simple way forward in the search for contentment? I won't pretend that they are. Are there other things that you might be able to do? Sure. Look, uh, being healthy is great, but healthy will not make you holy. Being prosperous, 
can be of benefit. It won't make you virtuous. Demonstrating brilliance, there's a certain satisfaction to that. It doesn't mean you will automatically be a blessing. And that's why contentment rests on things that have nothing to do with what is in you and nothing to do with what is outside of you. And that's why Henry Nouwen, sort of a good line to end on to remind us of this, no friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community will ever be able to put to rest our deepest cravings for unity and wholeness. And that is why contentment is found in that joy that is not of this world and is built up in us certainly through our participation in what he is doing and what he's called us to, but it rests mightily upon him acting in us and for us. This is the way. No, it's not easy, but it is plain. Let's pray. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves when, like the psalmist, it asks, why are we downcast, O our souls? Uh, why is there no hope within us? Why is there turmoil? I pray that you would teach me and to teach us all what it means to think well and to pray our tears and to uh, practice that which you have shown us so that when the proportion of our hearts to our circumstances becomes unstable and disordered, that you might restore us to yourself, to our right mind, and to a proper joy. Help us, sir, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.